Thank you for having us. We're really enjoying ourselves being with you. Uh, we hope it won't be the uh, the last time we see each other. Uh, uh, if not, of course, heaven will be long enough, but we hope we'll see each other before then. Uh, the team from St. Andrews had some words I want to share some with you before I speak about revival. Uh, the Lord says uh, that he sees you as a Titus II church. You need to look at that up and is very pleased with you. But there is more. This is a watershed moment for you. Psalm 84 is key. And the new thing is to be soaked in worship. You'll go from strength to strength. And uh, one of our prophetic people saw the Holy Spirit bubbling up as, as water through the floorboards. Uh, the Lord says there is much provision for you. Uh, as we, we sang tonight, uh, I don't think my son has seen this, but uh, the Lord says he wants to give courage to you. Uh, the Lord wants people to let down the drawbridge so he can come in. Now, all of us can be frightened, of course, of, of letting the Lord come closer. But he comes not to hurt, but to heal. So don't you put your barriers up to the Lord of infinite grace. Because he's tender. And the Lord wants to ring out through you his saving message to beckon in those who are not yet part of his family. And the Lord wants to give sight to the blind spiritually and particularly so that you may see what the Lord is doing. Okay, I want to read some uh, some journals. It's always exciting to read people's diaries, isn't it? Eh, don't you think? And uh, here's uh, three diary entries. Suddenly I felt my heart melting within me like wax before a fire and love to God for my Savior. I felt not also only love and peace, but a longing to die and be with Christ. Then there came a cry into my soul within that I'd never known before. Abba, Father, I could do nothing but call God my Father. I knew that I was his child and he loved me and he was listening to me. My mind was satisfied and I cried out, now I am satisfied. Give me strength and I will follow thee through water and fire. That was an unordained exhorter, as they were called in those days, a Welsh Calvinist by the name of Howell Harris. About three in the morning, as we were continuing instant in prayer, the power of God came mightily upon us, insomuch that many cried out for exceeding joy, and many fell to the ground. As soon as we recovered a little from that awe and amazement, At the presence of his majesty, we broke out with one voice and sang, We praise thee, O God. We acknowledge thee to be the Lord. It's an extraordinary way to start the year. That was January the 1st, 1739, from John Wesley's journal. Remember that date? January the 1st, 1739, about three in the morning, as we are continuing instant in prayer the Lord's power fell on us. Now what's going on? I could keep you here with all kinds of accounts. I have at least 75 books on revival. I could keep you all sorts of here, loads of testimonies. 
Do you know the last place to have revival in the United Kingdom? I bet you say the Hebrides, but you're wrong. The last place was Felixstowe, around about 1954, slightly later than the, the Hebrides. Uh, interesting, isn't it? Uh, anyway, I could keep you to what, what's going on. And we know the Lord is with us always. We know Jesus has promised, I'm with you always. And yet there are times when he seems to be especially close. At times when he seems to come down suddenly upon us. When I was in Toxteth, finding things very difficult, not at all sure how to preach the gospel, having experienced quite a lot of opposition, some of it personal, some of it at the end of a knife, uh, some of it at the end of uh, police battens. We got beaten up by the police. That's another story. And wondering what on earth I could do to, to win people for the Lord. I, I had a, a vendetta against me. Uh, the local criminal broke into and stole my car nine times in ten weeks. Still, it's Liverpool, so there's not a, uh, uh, there's not something without humour. I got a, a Christmas card from Auto Windscreen for being their best customer. <laughs> I once, walking down the street right outside my house, I said hello to a black lady and I got pushed against the wall by the thug and said, how dare you speak to somebody not of your colour. I held an open meeting in a church in the Catholic Church, and it was uh, beaten up. We were just beaten up by thugs, and uh, the whole meeting was broken up. So I was a bit of a mess, wondering how on earth I could uh, share the love of God. And I go and hear John Wimber in Sheffield, and I'm really irritated. I'd heard him at Chorleywood, and that had been all right. It had been more than all right. It had been pretty amazing, but... uh, I really wanted more, and I went to hear him in, in, in Sheffield, and it really cheesed me off because I didn't get touched. And uh, <clears throat> and, and the last day, I, I woke up in a mood. I know it's hard to believe. I'm such a gentle kind of bear of a man, but I was in a mood, and I said, God, it's not fair. Every else is getting touched, and I want you to give me a double portion of your spirit, and that's a very dangerous prayer to pray. And, and nothing happened all Thursday, and I was getting more and more irritated and more and more angry. And Wimber stopped speaking. He put his raincoat on, which I can't really believe he did. He put his raincoat on and said, I'm off to America now. And I thought, flip. Nothing's happened. And then suddenly, as he was walking off the stage, he said, oh, God's just told me that he wants you to go and have a cup of coffee. Then I'm going to come back and going to pray for you all. I thought, we're in. And uh, so we all had a cup of coffee. And I tell you, I was just beside myself. I couldn't wait to get back. You know, I kind of already kind of, I'm sure the Lord was going to meet with me. And Wimber blessed leaders. And as he blessed, I had no idea what was going on except this. The power of the Lord came on me. The Lord showed me the date I was born. And the day I was going to die. And he showed me the whole of my ministry. And he put it in a pair of scales. And it amounted to nothing. It didn't even move the scales as much as a gnat's kneecap. 
And so as I was aware of the holiness and the power of God and people around me, including my incumbent, said, there's no way we could get, around, get to pray for you. There's like a force field around you. I felt rather flippantly I said to the Lord, my ministry doesn't amount to much, does it? You might as well kill me. Big mistake. Because he said, I might just do that. And so Ruth was about 85 months pregnant at the time. She was enormous with dear Matthew there. And uh, (laughs) so in my spirit, I said goodbye to her. Uh, and then my arms and legs were filled with light like a neon tube in my arms and legs. And I thought, hot dog, I have died. And the angels are singing, uh, Our God Reigns. I know that one. That's, that's how old it was. You know, it's a long time ago. When was the last time you sang Our God Reigns? And uh, anyway, you see, that was a reviving experience. The power of the Lord came upon me and I went back to Toxteth. And... I didn't change my message at all, but suddenly people became Christians. I started leading a youth group, and I said to this youth group, I said, we're going to do the stuff that Jesus did. And they said, how? I said, I've got no idea. I said, what we're going to do is we're going to go with a Bible in our hand, and we're going to read Luke's Gospel, and where it says do this, we're going to do the same. So I had a group of terrorists, really, in my youth group, uh, <laughs> Uh, one of whom I led to the Lord, and he used to put nails in baseball bats and swing them around at people's heads. He gave his life to the Lord, and the Lord gave him an instant gift of teaching. He expanded the book of Romans, but he did so with four-letter words. <laughs> and you see, that's okay, because maturity takes time to grow. I'd work that one out. You know, when he said, God, you're effing brilliant, I thought, that's, that's an unusual uh, <laughs> praise song. Uh, I take this crowd into the local comprehensive school, these youth. I said, we're going to pray for the sick. We're going to really do the stuff. And it was packed. It must have been a maths exam or something. The CU meeting was just packed. And, uh, and this girl says, what could Jesus do about this? And she rolled up her arms of her sleeve and it was just, her arm was covered in pus. It's gross. So I said to the, one of the youth group, I said, do you pray delegation? You see, leadership is very good. <laughs> and uh, they said, what do you pray? I said, i got no idea. <laughs> but just go for it. I'm sure the Lord will bless you. Well, she prayed and nothing happened. It's very depressing, isn't it, when that happens? Anyway, we go away somewhat with our tails between our legs, thinking, oh, this is terrible, what a terrible mess. You know, we said Jesus can do this stuff, and he's not doing anything, and he's all over And uh, that girl goes and has a bath that night, and as she has a bath, the skin sloughs off her like a snake. And her arm is completely fresh and new. And she called me up and said, please come and tell my mother and my dad and my friends. See, what's going on? Or because the power of the Lord visited and came upon me. Let's examine revival and understand it in these terms. God is with us. He's with us unalterably. He's with us inalienably. He's with us gloriously. He's with us completely. There'd be no church otherwise in existence if God wasn't living with us and Christ wasn't with us. The bride of Christ is not living on maintenance 
The bride of Christ is not living on minimum stores of grace. What does it mean for God to be with us? It means much more than God is omnipresent. Even the devils believe that, and I hope we believe more than them. It's more than an organic unity with Christ as the head of the church, the body. The last four words of the book of Ezekiel, I'm sure you all know what they are. The Lord is there, Yahweh Shammah. And it's a funny book, Ezekiel, at the best of times. And you read the last chapters of Ezekiel, you think, what on earth is going on? It's all very architectural. It's all about the temple being built. And then paradoxically, they want the whole world to be the temple. And that says, the Lord is there. Yahweh Shama, the Lord is there. Write, the Lord is there upon your cooking utensils. Write it upon your Ferraris or your camels with a speed stripe down the side. Whatever it is, that's a kind of you know, paraphrased version. The Lord is there. What could be written over St. Michael's? The Lord is there. Wouldn't it be great to have a notice saying, you know, put your hard hats in, on. You know, strap yourselves in. We're about to go further in and further on than we've ever been before. Well, I'm glad you like that idea. I think that would be a good idea for a church to be like that, but... You carry on with your boring God, who doesn't exist, by the way, because God isn't boring. So your God, if he's boring, doesn't exist. He's a figment of your imagination. And as such, he's an idol. So get rid of him. (laughs) Think of the disciples after the resurrection. It took them 50 days to realize that Jesus meant what he said when he said, I'm with you always. He wasn't walking through walls there one minute, gone the next. He was always there. You read the resurrection accounts. That's why he said to Thomas, Tom, why did you say what you did? He heard it. He's always there. But by appearing and disappearing, he was teaching them a vital truth to walk by faith and not by sight unbelief stripped them from enjoying his presence. I wish we got this. I wish I could walk down the rows and shake every single one of you until you understand that Jesus has already told us in the parable of the soils that we should be met with differing levels of success as we seek to spread his word. The disciples seem to understand this, not for them bitter self-recrimination when things didn't quite work out. Not for them, endless soul-searching as to why revival hadn't broken out. The Lord is there. He loved us on the cross. He doesn't love us any less now. God can never be anything but himself. Let me say that again. God can never be anything but himself. He's not a kettle. He can never be off the boil. He's always red hot. It's staggering that all we know of the grace and faithfulness of God in Christ, yet there are still those Christians who are anxious because they're not sure whether they've done enough to guarantee the Spirit's presence. What is enough? Walking across England on broken glass, would that be enough? There is nothing you can do 
to make him come among you. He's here already. It's too late. In the Old Testament, the Spirit was experienced fleetingly. He really usually only appointed men, leaders, and David, a man after God's own heart, prayed a prayer that none of us in this room can pray. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Jesus has said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will send the Holy Spirit to you. He'll be your helper. He'll be with you and in you forever. Don't pray that prayer. It's an Old Testament pre-Pentecostal prayer. You can't pray it. The Spirit has come to stay. And when he stays, he stays not as something static, like a battery winding down, but like a river. Like blowing wind, like soothing oil, like burning fire. If you take the image of a river, again found in the book of Ezekiel in chapter 47, it's water to swim in. Stand by any river. It's always on the move. It's dynamic. The Spirit's always on the move. The Spirit's dynamic. Stand by any river. And it's always moving. You can't remain by the same bit of river. It's gone. You're standing here and it's gone because the river's moving. The Lord is there. He's dynamic. He's always moving. It's not in the nature of God to lie low. It's not in the nature of God to be anything but himself. The river of God is full of water. The wind blows. The fire burns. The oil soothes. It's impossible and not a little ludicrous and probably heretical to think of God as anything but at the height of his powers. He's never worn out or tired. He's not ever thinking, oh, I've been doing this for so many years now. Frankly, I'm just getting a bit weary. He's never like that. He is always hot. He's always flowing. He's always dynamic. Behind everything he does lies his perfection. He does nothing by halves. He always acts in the full zest of his boundless love, his energetic power and his changeless presence. Now knowing this is different from knowing that Bono is the lead singer of U2. It's an experimental knowledge. It's an experiential knowledge. It's a knowledge that says, I know this to be true. The early Methodists were taught, preach a felt Christ. You know, I have some conditions, and one of them is I take against prayers. Some prayers I won't say amen to. It's a little habit of mine. 
I'd like to start a club, so if you'd like to join me in this. I hate saying amen to be with us, Lord. Because he can't help himself. I can't get him to leave. I can't soften him up so he'll want to stay just a bit longer. I can never wait for him to turn up. I can only wait on him who is here. We may, like the apostles, be full of doubt. But that doesn't change the thing. Look at the Great Commission. Great Commission, Matthew 28, it says, Jesus appeared and some doubted. And even to those who doubted, Jesus said, I'm with you always. You can't help it. Whether you think I'm with you or not makes not a blind bit of difference. I am with you always. And I sometimes wonder, the trouble with dead churches is not that God has failed to keep his promise, it's that dead people don't know what's alive. So rejoice and act upon his nearness. All of us are like Jacob who says, God is in this place and I knew it not. Do you know, you can't go anywhere in Stoke without God being there. They wondered about that. You're off to Tesco's and he's already there by the sausage counter. I mean, that's interesting. That would make a, a, a slight encounter more interesting. He's waiting for you. There's no way you can go where he isn't already there. Even if I escape to the farthest west, you're there. If I go to the world of the dead, you're there. I mean, folks, where can you go? So I do want to say... When people say, be with us, Lord, where have you been? Because I don't think you've been anywhere that is recognizable in the cosmos where God already is. <laughs> so whether you feel it or not, God is here. His spirit is with us. Understand this? Revelation 1 and the bist of the churches, Jesus standing there, his face like the noonday sun, his voice like the thousand cascading waterfalls thundering out. Out of his mouth comes the sharp, effective word of his blessing. His hair is white as snow. John says first it's White like wool, but really that's not bright enough. No, it's like white like snow. And that, by the way, is why barristers wear wigs. Because they're trying to be like the one who's wise. It's true. It's where it comes from. His hair as white as one with wool. And John's experience was that Jesus is standing in the midst of the churches. This is who you've come to worship, by the way. This is he who's walking between the lines right now. Jesus with his wraps off. He's here. The Lord is here. The Lord of infinite majesty. The Lord of glorious prospect. The Lord risen from the dead. The one who defeated the devil. He didn't just do a sort of 15 round heavyweight contest with the devil and came out on points. Despite the fact that he'd been beaten at least 
Well, at least 39 times, because that was what the Romans insisted upon. They insisted upon beating naked somebody who was about to be crucified, tying them to the post, whipping them with a cat and nine tails with bits of bone or metal on it from the right shoulder to the left buttock at least 39 times. And each time that happened, done, by the way, by a centurion, think a big sergeant major kind of guy, each time that happened, more of the flesh of Jesus would have been torn away. Josephus, a contemporary historian, describes how somebody who's been beaten, who's about to be crucified, how his kidneys fell out. And when he's crucified, he's crucified naked and his bowels will empty. Forget loincloths, this is a horrible thing. And the terrible thing about crucifixion is this. And again, every single thing gets it wrong. The terrible thing about crucifixion is the thing from which it gets its name, which is the crux, which is the saddle between the legs upon which the poor crucified man sits. And the thing about that is, is as you sit upon this little saddle, your lungs compress and you can't breathe. So you haul yourself up again on the nails and the nails tear. And so you put yourself down again upon the saddle. Every time you haul yourself up again, you start suffocating. And then this man, he was taken from the cross and he was put in a stone-cold tomb and he overcame the Romans and he had to... Do so as if he just went out on points. No, a thousand times no. The disciples saw him and said, you are the prince of life. That's the Jesus who's standing here. Do you get it? Mm. However, there are times, aren't there, when God comes down like he did on me in Sheffield. There are times when God comes down. He's here, but he comes down. He's with us, but he comes on. Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan writer, describes an occasion of a father and son going for a walk, hand in hand. They seem content with each other, happy in each other's company. But then suddenly, the father reaches down and picks up his son, puts him in the air, and then holds him so close, and then says to him with great affection, Oh, I love you so much. And proceeds to kiss him again and again and again. Now, I want to suggest to you that you going for a walk with the Lord hand in hand is our normal experience. He's with you and in you. Never to leave you. But there are times when the Lord of glory picks you up. you with kisses says I love you so much and he swoops down and he gives us kisses of assurance so we become impassioned and we can say that's my dad And he can say, in the immortal words of Tom and Jerry and Spike, That's my boy. That's my girl. And being held close and being kissed is what I want to suggest the Bible talks about as revival. And indeed the Bible has a theological term for it. The Bible calls it, I believe, the sealing of the Spirit. 
Paul writes about it in 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22. He anointed us. He set his seal of ownership upon us. He put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. He talks about in 2 Corinthians 5, 5. It is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the spirit, a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. He talks about in Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. Having believed in Christ, you were marked in him with a seal. Not an oink oink, but the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance with the re- until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. He talks about in Ephesians 4 verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, when you buy a house, you put a deposit down as an earnest, as a guarantee that we intend to pay the full price later. At least I think that's what you do, but I've never bought a house. And the Spirit is given to us as such a deposit. He is God's way of saying that one day we shall receive full redemption. One day, all we have and all we are will be totally redeemed, recreated, renewed, restored. I'm really sorry. You must be dead. We just check your pulse. I hope your toes are curling in excitement. And the sealing of the Spirit is not something we take by faith. What a ridiculous teaching that is, by the way. I'll explain why in a minute. There are scriptures which are stripped of their meaning and their power unless we see them as speaking of something which can be felt and known by experience. Romans 5 says, Hope 5.5 says, hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by what? By the Holy Spirit, whom he's given us. If you've got a heart that's empty, that's grating, that's hard and brittle, that's full of hatred towards people different from yourself, and suddenly something happens to your heart so that you feel love to one another, you know something, someone has come from outside and done something to you that has made you different from what you once were. Yes? 1 Peter 1.8 says this, Though you have not seen Christ, you love him. That's true for all of us, yes? And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him, yes? All good so far? Now I'm going to get you. And are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Hmm. How can you be filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy without showing it? Oh, it's deep. It's deep within me. Inside, I'm really dancing, Vicar. You should have seen me before I got saved. 
Folks, if you are not filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, may I suggest, lovingly and kindly, there may be more of the Holy Spirit for you to have. If you look around and you see people, Christians, who name the name of the liberated Christ and their faces are as long as a milk round, maybe I can suggest ever so gently that they need to understand there is more. And it's always been the way. The Bishop Butler, for whom we get the philosophical Bishop Butler's analogy, if that means anything to you, he said to John Wesley, he said, Sir, they spoke like that in those days, Sir, your enthusiasm is quite horrid. (laughs) That in itself amuses me because the word enthusiasm comes from two Greek words, entheo, in God. Your in-godism, from a bishop to a fellow clergyman, your in-godism is horrid. Dylan Thomas, who liked to drink a bit, He said this, an alcoholic is somebody you don't like who drinks more than you do. I tell you, a fanatic in the church is someone you don't like who loves Jesus more than you. See, I have been forgiven. I was lost. I was bound for hell in a handbasket. God in his grace lifted me up. Cleaned me out. Put a new song in my heart. Can't I be enthusiastic about my Redeemer? Can't I preach the gospel with tears? Can't I hold somebody close to me and say, Don't you understand? The Lord of infinite majesty loves you. And he wants you to walk with him. Part of your walking with him will be that every so often he will lift you up and then he'll hold you close and he'll shy you with kisses and say, I love you so much. There you are like this, oh God, don't touch me. Touch them for and no more. Thanks very much, Lord. There are those whom I respect greatly, let it be said, who say that this seeding of the Spirit is only positional, that the Father places a seal upon us, invisible to us all, but not to him, and as soon as we believe in him. Well, I have two responses to that. First, language means nothing if in the above verses, if what is spoken of being received is not known that we've received it. I think I've made that point. But secondly, and much more foundational, the sealing of the Spirit isn't for the Father's sake. 
He knows those who are his. If I buy your house, I lay down a deposit, not for my sake, but for yours. You need the sealing of the Spirit. You need to know it. A deposit is assigned to the receiver, not to the giver. The Father sets his seal upon you because you need this reviving, renewing, restoring, energizing, enervating, exhilarating power of the Holy Spirit coming on you. Otherwise, it's all a bit weak and weary and meddlesome and, oh, fire upon it. It is a weary life. The seal of the Spirit is for the believer to assure him, to assure her, to enable him, to enable her to feel the Father's pleasure of ownership. And his ability to protect my dad runs the universe. And he has my interests at heart. Folks, whatever, whatever your experience, you need that, don't you? You need. You need the power of the Spirit to come on you. You need the sense of the Lord to say, I love you, I'm for you, I'm not mad at you in any way. Let me kiss you. I think that's revival. I think there are seasons where the Lord can't help himself. He says, I'm with this lot forever. Now I'm going to come upon them and show them that I'm really who I say I am. Now I started by saying, do you remember the date? What was the date? 1739, what day of the year? January the 1st. Six months later, Wesley wrote this. We met at Fetter Lane, where the Spirit had first fallen on us, to humble ourselves before God. We acknowledged that we had grieved him by a manifold division. But in that hour... We found God with us as at the first. Some fell prostrate upon the ground. Others burst out as with one consent into loud praise and thanksgiving. And many openly testified that there had not been a day such as this since January the first preceding. You see? could take your church calendar and you could say, oh God, on the 16th of June, 2012, you met with us. And I want you to meet with us again. 
and for the sake of your covenant commitment to us, because your name is faithful and true, because you are always with us and you cannot help yourself. You are always hot. You are always dynamic. You are always moving towards us. Yet, oh God, would you please come down upon us and give us a sense of your assurance. Would you please kiss us with the seal of the Spirit. Would you so enliven us that we could say, you did it on the 16th of June 2012 and you're going to do it again on the 16th of August and the 16th of October. And oh God, would you please make yourself known in ways that we know that you are among us. Shake the building if necessary. Shake us if necessary. Oh God, stir up yourself. Don't you think that's the way to pray? I think it's in the Psalms. Psalm 44, it says, God, wake up! You never felt like that? He never goes to sleep, but sometimes we need to feel like that, don't we? Wake up. He says, why, says the psalmist, why do you longer march out with our armies? Habakkuk, we've heard of your fame. We've heard of your deeds. Oh, God. Renew them in our day. Wouldn't you like that? So, when revival hit the Isle of Lewis, Duncan Campbell came, and he preached. He was rather irritating at being asked to preach because he hadn't had any dinner. These things are important to preachers. I preach a lot, as you can see. And, uh, <laughs> and as you're at the door, shaking hands, you know, everybody having roast vicar or roast pasta, it's a, it's a Sunday particular pastime. And he was thinking, great, I can go to the mansion now, I can have some dinner. A 15-year-old boy himself over the pew and said, oh God, there must be more than this. And Duncan Campbell never got his dinner because the spirit fell down. An answer to a little boy's heartfelt cry You never felt that? The silence of your own heart and the grieving of your own spirit. Have you never felt there must be more than this? But hope deferred has made the heart sick. The church is full of people who are hope deferring kind of people. You say things to clergy like, well, tried that before, vicar. Didn't work then, won't work now. As it was in the beginning, is now and is always shall be. 
which of course isn't a statement of church practice, but a statement of glorious theology about the worship that's going on day in, day out to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, of which we just join in. Well, I really want you to, to be gripped by this. The whole day has made you hunger for more. I hope you realize that the gospel we have is a gospel of grace. And I hope you realize that when you cry out for more, the very least you are praying for, I believe, is the sealing of the Spirit. And I hope in those three talks I have given you all that you need to live till the Lord comes again. I mean, folks, you already know more than you put into practice. You've already filled hundreds of notebooks that you never look at again. I'm not under any illusion that I am gone this time next week. You won't think about me again. But I want you to lose your heart to Jesus. The one who comes towards us and says, come on, walk my way. Walk my way into Stoke Gifford and let's see what good works I prepared for you in advance to walk in. Come and see what people I'm already at work in. Do you think he's only at work in us? There are people he's already drawing and wooing and he's just wanting you to make the connection. And if you said, how are you, not as a greeting, but as if you really meant it, you'd have many conversations for the kingdom. Oh, now you mention it. My dog's died, my back's bad, and my mum's poorly. None of which, by the way, at least one of those is true. Oh, can I pray for you? Now, don't pray with your eyes closed. I know no verse in the Bible that says that. Don't pray as if a donkey has kicked you in the throat. <laughs> yeah, almighty God. I don't know why they talk like that. Perhaps they say, oh, wife, would you pass the potatoes? I, I, I really don't know why they do that. Ask God to come. If you want to reach out more, I'll give you a little phrase. It's helped me enormously. Have mercy on the next person you meet. Have mercy on the next person you meet. I'm going to end with a story about a dear friend. Some of you will, may remember him. This friend, uh, he and his wife have adopted children in every country of the world they've worked in. Got twins from Bangladesh. They've got a child from Uganda, a, a child from Thailand, and a, a child from Cambodia. And uh, one of the great things about this couple is that when they were looking for a church to go to, they went to a church, and they found a church, and they found a house, and they found the house right next to a, uh, a blind school. 
and uh, they take, in rotation, members of the blind school on holiday with them. That's good, isn't it? It doesn't stop there, though, because they went around the church and they asked her, any older person whose relatives had died, any of you would like to live with them? And so they built a granny flat. Uh, they're social workers, and they decided it wouldn't be fun to the social workers. We had a sleepover. I mean, why should the young people have all the fun? Well, he took me to Toronto. And at Heathrow, there was a, a lady with three kids, one babe in arms, having a terrible time trying to check in. And he goes from the back of the queue to the front of the queue, and he says to the lady, what's the problem? And the mother says, frustrated and angry, who are you? He says, I'm just, just me. What's the problem? She said, we can't check in. They're all in the road together. And he looks at the checkout and says, of course she can. And, and they're checked in. On the flight, he goes and spends time with the children. He starts reading stories to them, does magic tricks with the kids. He says to the, the mother, you go to sleep. As he landed at Toronto, the first thing he does is get their luggage. The next thing he does is he pays for them to go where they want to go. At this point, the woman is crying. She says, who are you? And he gives us his name. She says, why are you doing this? She says, Jesus loves you so much. You know, we can rip people's hearts open with kindness. Jesus told us, treat others as you yourself would like to be treated. It's not hard, is it? Have mercy on the next person you meet. You know what that looks like. Because you know what it would be like if you received mercy and you were in need. Okay, we're going to have a time of ministry. Let's stand.